Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Storytime with Boone. Thank you very much again for downloading it and a massive thank you also for all the positive feedback that you've been sending my way again. On this episode, I'll tell you about the time two young lads from Oxford jibbed into an Inspiral Carpets gig back in 1989. It was the first time they'd ever been to a gig. They were aged just 13 and 15 at the time and they went away and formed a band of their own, one of the most loved British bands of all time. I'll tell you about the time that the Inspirals found themselves in a haunted bowling alley in Germany, uh, just after one of our German friends had accidentally drunk a couple of pints of our uh, piss. And uh, our bunch of people on a music tour of Manchester got a lovely surprise one afternoon in one of the city's back streets. I'll tell you about how last week I found myself very reluctantly uh, taking part in a piece of street theatre in the beautiful city of Chester. Never again, mate, never again. And on each episode, I talk about a particular song that I've written and how it came about. On this podcast, I'll talk about another track from the never-released Engie Benji album that I made and how it dawned on me as I played it to the programme's creator for the first time. It dawned on me that the lyrics actually sound like something else completely different. The unsigned upcoming band that you're going to hear at the end of this episode are in fact a band that recently reformed after many years apart, a band that I got to do a lot of work with back in the late 90s and early noughties, a band called The Custom Built from Newcastle, the brilliant. My podcasts are brought to you by those clever people at Distorted Productions. Great work, guys, as always. And uh, don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist that I put together every week where you can hear full versions of some of the tracks on this episode and you get to hear other tracks as well, which are in some way connected to the stories that I'm about to tell you. Okay, let's do it. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. I always find it really heartwarming to see young kids in the audience at gigs, at live gigs, and I've seen a band for the first time. Experiencing, for the first time, that excitement of a mass of people singing along and dancing and chanting. It's a unique feeling, isn't it? And the bass frequencies, you know, resonating around the room and making your chest and your stomach feel weird like that. It's one of the most infectious sensations in the human experience I think you know it's fair to say isn't it it's addictive it's addictive isn't it my first proper gig ever was Dr Feelgood they played the Palace Theatre in Manchester 1975 I was only 15 at the time before that I'd seen the occasional band play like at school concerts or local youth clubs and you know community centres around Oldham but I'd never been to a proper gig really you know a big PA and that so nothing serious until that night in 75 when um the feel goods came bouncing out onto the stage in Manchester. And it changed the way I felt about everything in the world, really, seeing that and feeling it. And none of us in the room, nobody in that room at the time realised, but at that exact moment, Dr. Feelgood were laying the the foundation stones for a thing called punk rock, which had uh, changed things dramatically and permanently for a lot of us the following year, 1976. The feel goods helped to create punk rock. So I was there and I was I was enthralled and I was just loving it. And once you get that bug, it's hard to shake it. It's a bug that bites very deep, in it? And that bug made me go in and start a band. One of the Inspiral Carpet's earliest gigs in Oxford was at a venue called the Jericho Tavern. It was in 1989. And we were joined in the dressing room just before the gig by two young lads uh, from Oxford. And we chatted to them for a while. And we gave them some drinks and that. And they told us that this was the first gig they'd ever been to. And they'd heard us on John Peel's radio show and they loved our music. One of the lads was called Gaz. And I asked him how old he was. He said, I'm 13. I said, but you've got sideburns. And he said, yeah, I think that's why the bouncers like me. And they think I'm older. They think I'm over 18 because I've got sideburns. His mate was called Danny. He was only 15, a bit older than, than the other one, than Gaz. And they were right at the front 
of the crowd for the gig they're pushed up against this small stage no barriers or anything like that and they're sweating they're laughing they're singing along feeling those bass frequencies in the chest and they enjoyed the gig that much that our singer Tom he pointed them out to the crowd Danny particularly he was going hell for leather that one right in front of the stage and at one point Tom patted Danny on the head between songs and he said this next one's for this little lad here this little dude here who can't stop dancing and little did they know right those two teenagers little did they know that one day there'd be a blue plaque on the wall outside that venue as a tribute to the band that they'd eventually form and to this day Gaz still says that that night at the Jericho Tavern watching in Spiral Carpets was a seminal moment in the journey that him and his mate Danny embarked upon they went away and they formed a band called the Jennifers which then became Theodore Supergrass, and that eventually became Supergrass. And that band, Supergrass, took Gaz and Danny all the way around the world several times and just carried on spreading that same bug. Life in a, a rock and roll band, it wouldn't be normal without its members constantly taking the piss out of each other and playing tricks on each other and, and those unfortunate enough to cross paths with them, you know what I mean? Apart from Morris's band, probably not many fart cushions and smelly socks being left on the singer's bunk in that particular tour bus, you know what I mean? Within Spirals, that part of our being, if you like, became probably as important as the side of us that wrote and recorded music and it, all those persistent wind-ups and piss-taking, it became an integral part of our lives. It was what we were all about, really. Maybe it's to alleviate the boredom, maybe that's why bands do it, or maybe it's a bonding thing, I don't know. Anyway, but it was there at day one, back in the 80s, in our band, and it's still there now, 30 years later. On a particularly eventful trip to Germany, let's say, in the, the early 1990s, the Inspirals played an outdoor rock festival. It was in a small town somewhere, I can't remember the name of the festival. And we got picked up from the airport in what I seem to remember was a meat van. Or at least it was a van that somebody had spent the earlier part of the day delivering raw meat in. It stunk. It stunk of meat. And there was still the residue of blood on the floor. It's like blood deposits on the floor. Maybe there'd been a, a murder in it. Maybe there'd been a murder. <laughs> there'd been a murder in the van. Anyway, so we were already run, running late for the gig. This bugger in van's late as well. And the trip in the meat van took forever. And we ended up arriving on site later than we planned. And we ended up having to rush to get changed and to dash on stage just in time for the show. And we're all a bit pissed off about all this and about the van and about getting to the gig late, although the gig was good from what I can remember. And it wasn't a massive festival, but some of our German record company people turned up, um, a couple of representatives uh, from uh, Intercord, it was called, the label out there. And we had no dressing room as such, but we were escorted to a, a little building which housed a sort of private temping bowling club of some sort. And this clubhouse had a a single full-size bowling lane in it, like a bowling alley. And the adjoining room was like the club's trophy room or a lounge, whatever. And that was our allocated dressing room for the event. And there are all these trophies around, like there's scores of them, you know, in cabinets and hung on the walls, photographs everywhere, full, full job, you know. And as soon as we came off stage, like always, the after-gig dressing room antics died, people stripping off, sweaty underpants getting thrown about and... Lambert, bollock naked, as usual. One of the lads, I'm not going to name any names here, but one of the lads grabs this big cup, like a trophy, 
some award for like best bowling team or something. I don't know. It was like the FA Cup, but a bit smaller and gold coloured. Anyway, band member number one, who shall remain nameless, but I know exactly who it was. He takes his trophy off the shelf, takes the lid off, and proceeds to start pissing in the, in the trophy. <laughs> band member number two flicks the elastic down on his undies and gets his tackle out, and he also starts pissing into it at the same time. Crossing swords, we call it, don't we? Crossing swords. And anyway, so soon. It was full of piss. And at this point, the door opens and in walks our German record company representative, whose name I shan't tell you, to congratulate us on a great gig that we've just done. And immediately, band member number one pretends to be drinking from the trophy. It was brilliant. He puts it to his mouth, he's pretending to be drinking from it, like it's champagne from our rider. And then he passes it to band member number two, who does the same thing, pretends to have a drink of it, passes it to another band member who takes an imaginary sip and then passes it to this German record company representative who immediately proceeds to glug the fucking lot down like there's no tomorrow, right? He's glugging away at it. He should have seen his face. When he, when he realised what he'd done, the poor bastard, he didn't talk much after that. He didn't say much to us. And our record deal with Mute Records, incidentally, that was the, the British label with Mute, intercord as a German label. This deal, this record deal was terminated very soon after this event. And to this day, I don't know if there's a connection there. I like to think it was just a coincidence. You know what I mean? But we found ourselves out of a record deal within weeks of making this bloke drink piss. <laughs> because we Anyway, back to the trophy room. So by now I've gone to investigate this bowling alley in the next room on my own. And it's just one full-size bowling lane with automatic skittle realigning mechanism thing at the end, whatever they call that, whatever the technical term is. You know, that machine puts all the skittles back. A couple of uh, settees in there and some pretty groovy lighting and that. And then Lambert wanders in, Graham, our guitarist wanders in. And we get a couple of bowling balls out and we start having a go, even though we've been told not to touch anything. There's no skittles, though. There's no skittles or pins in place at this point. And then we came up with this really cool idea for a wind-up. So what we did, we turned the lights right down, so it's just, you know, almost total darkness in this room. And I walk down the bowling lane and I climb into where the, the mechanism is and I hide in the darkness in there, right? And then Graham goes back into the, the dressing room, trophy room area makes out that I've gone out for a walk somewhere outside. And he says, hey, lads, come here. I've just seen this. There's something really weird going on in here. Come on, have a look. So the band and, and roadies and Piss Breath, the, uh, the German record company man, <laughs> all pile in behind him. And Lammy says, watch this, right? It's, it's proper weird, this. And he bowls a bowling ball really fast down the bowling lane, right towards where the skittles should be, towards where I'm hiding in total darkness. And I can see the ball coming at me. And as it gets near me, I grab it dead quick and then with all my strength, within a split second, just throw it back really hard up the alley. So it's bouncing, like really noisy, like big violent bounces back towards Lammy and the lads. And they're all like, fucking hell, man, no way. Lammy gets hold of the ball again, sends it back with all his might. Same again, I grab it, launch it back at him. This time it doesn't land until about halfway up the bowling lane. And then I could hear all this glass smashing as it gets to the other end. They all put the drinks down and this ball knocked all the drinks over. And I can hear one saying, it's fucking haunted, this, it's fucking haunted, I'm getting out of here. Somebody else is like, oh, I think there's probably something wrong with the mechanism. <laughs> anyway, they didn't have a clue. They didn't have a clue I was in there. I'm not, I'm, listen, don't go trying this in your local bowling alley. 
I won't want any of you getting mashed up in that machinery, not that skittle machinery. Do you know what I mean? Don't, don't go trap. I'm, I'm not condoning it. I'm not condoning it at all, but it was funny. Take the skinheads bowling, take them bowling. Take the skinheads bowling, take them bowling. My mate Craig, the drummer out of the Spiral Carpets, has got a very successful little business. And it's called Manchester Music Tours. Now, I'm not telling you this story to advertise Manchester Music Tours, but he has cornered the market in the north for music tours around the city of Manchester. But basically, there's a story, a really lovely story that I heard recently. Craig's been doing this for a few years. He, he has people coming from all over the world to visit Manchester, and he's the one that they come to to visit the the landmarks, if you like, the historical places. So places like Salford Lads Club and, uh, you know, the various recording studios in Manchester, you know, where the Hacienda used to be and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes he'll do it on foot, you know, he'll be walking around Manchester like, eh, this is uh, India House, this is where Noel used to live, eh, that's where the Hacienda was. Eh. Or sometimes, because he talks like that, sometimes he'll do it in his van, he's got a big yellow van with the uh, yellow with black stripes on, obvs, and um, he'll fill it with, with tourists and drive them around, like over to Macclesfield to the home of where he and Curtis used to live and all this. And he's brilliant at it. And he's, he's passionate about it and he's doing really well. So I'm not advertising. We don't need it. It sounds like an, it's a brilliant story. Wait till you the punchline. The punchline is amazing. So a few weeks ago, he's out there doing one of these tours. Uh, this is uh, where no one used to work, no Gallagher. Uh, and he takes them down to a place that used to be called the Boardwalk. So one of Manchester's most important venues ever was a place called the Boardwalk because it all the big bands played there on the way up but also a lot of the Manchester bands rehearsed in the basement and upstairs there was like rooms where bands used to rehearse so Happy Mondays used to rehearse in the, a certain ratio the Inspirals it's where Oasis started their first ever rehearsals so it's a really important building and it's still there it's used for offices and things now But so a few weeks ago Craig stood outside one Saturday afternoon with these tourists and he's like yeah uh, Noel Gallagher used to rehearse yeah uh, uh, in spiral carpets used to so he's doing all that business and he sees this car pulling up a big black car with black windows and it slows down and he's thinking it's either going to be somebody asking for directions or somebody going to give it in, in the neck and you know what I mean? just give, give him some earache about anything and he's there in the middle of his chit chat with these tourists and the car stops and the window comes down and it's like, all right, Craig, Ian Brown, <laughs> Ian Brown, yeah, Ian Brown stood there, like leaning out of his car, chatting to Craig. How you doing, man? You all right? Uh, yeah, I'm just doing a tour, um, music tour. And the the the, the tourists, <laughs> you can watch it, the faces, the jaws are on the floor. Craig said they couldn't believe it. It was like it, it was almost like Craig had slipped in a few notes to turn up at you know three o'clock outside Boardwalk, and uh, yeah, you could do some autographs. Proper man of the people, Ian Brown is, and, and Craig Gill, what an amazing person as well for coming up with that Manchester Music Tour thing, which you will find online if you need to do a music-related tour of Manchester. www.manchestermusictours.com There you go, Craig. You owe me one. So I remember on episode seven of Storytime in Boone, how I talked about the theme tune and uh, album 
that I wrote and recorded for the NG Benji children's television series. And on episode 13, I played you a song uh, that I wrote for one of the characters, Pilot Pete. Uh, it was a little What If song. Do you remember that? So on this episode, I'm going to tell you about another song that I wrote for another one of NG Benji's friends for the same album. So this particular song is written about a truck driver in NG Benji's world. It's called Troy, and it's about him and his truck. And the song deals with all the great things about trucks. It's a very positive song with a good, strong message about trucks and how good they are. And like most of the tracks on the NG Benji album, it didn't take long for me to write it and create it. I did spend a lot of time, though, driving to and from the studios of Cosgrove Hall in Manchester. They were the people that made the NG Benji series um, to play the songs to the programme's creator, Bridget Appleby. So sometimes I'd go down there a couple of times a day playing her ideas and I'd go home and tweak it and come back down. Because this was in the days before people like me could send music like down the line, as they said. There was no such thing as We Transfer and SoundCloud and Dropbox and all that. There was none of that back then. So I'm sat in Bridget's office one day with this CDR disc in my hand with this new song on it. And uh, we stick it in Bridget's CD player. And she said, what's this one called, Clint? And I said, it's called Trucks Are Good. And she said, what? I said, it's called Trucks Are Good. And she said, oh, I said, right, let's well, listen. So she puts it in, it starts, quirky as anything. I'm thinking another masterpiece here, another boom classic. And then I realised when it starts, when I start singing on it, that it sounds exactly like I'm singing Drugs Are Good. Right? Drugs are good. <laughs> and I'm not. I'm singing trucks are good. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck, that's not good. I'm convinced that Bridget's going to pick up on this. And I'm getting ready to apologise to her, you know, for not realising what I've done. But instead, this big smile appears across her face and she says to me, like, this is perfect. Like, once again, you've completely captured the spirit of Engie's world and its characters. She She loved it. So I didn't say anything apart from cheers, Bridget, whatever. She loved it. The rest of the team at Cosgrove all loved it. It became very popular at South Nightclub, where I played it every week for quite a while. The album never came out, but the, the Trucks Are Good song miraculously made it into the NG Benji stage show, which toured the UK uh, in 2001, 2002, played to thousands of British preschoolers and their relatives in theatres. And it also made it onto a four or five song CD, which you could buy at the gigs it seemed to be a big hit with the kids and the parents. Uh, I noticed recently as well, it's up on YouTube. <laughs> this song's up on YouTube too. Maybe it's just me looking a bit deeply into it. You know what I mean? See what you're thinking. It's probably just me overreacting and that, worrying over nothing. Here it is. This is Trucks Are Good, something that I wrote for NG Benji. Trucks are good, trucks are good For carrying engines, carrying wood For carrying things around the neighbourhood Trucks are good, trucks are good Trucks are neat, trucks are neat For picking up parts for pilot beat And taking things home for Charlotte to eat Trucks are neat, trucks are neat there's a trucker by the name of Troy He's big and strong but gentle His truck is like his little boy And he's very temperamental Trucks are cool, trucks are cool For picking up Benji Benji's tools And shoes and screws and swimming pools Trucks are cool, trucks are cool Trucks are red, trucks are green Trucks are blue and tangerine But Big Rig's the best truck on the scene You know what I mean, you know what I mean
It was my wife, Charlie's birthday last week, and we decided to uh, visit the the beautiful city of Chester for the day. It was a bit of a treat for us all. Uh, took the kids. It's a lovely place, Chester. Definitely worth visiting if you've never had the pleasure. There was a street entertainer setting his show up on the main street in the town centre in the afternoon. It was a big sort of pedestrianised area. And his name was Sam, who's from Sydney, Australia. And because his show involved fire, a robot and a machete, our boys were really keen to stick around and watch it. So we positioned ourselves in a good place, quite close to what had become the front of the crowd. And Sam started his routine, microphone headset on, his chatting away, encouraging people to come forward and watch. And as the crowd got bigger, he kept asking us all to move forward, closer towards him, which we did. And I knew I should have avoided any kind of eye contact with him somehow. Something told me, don't look him in the eye. And Anyway, it kept happening, didn't it? He'd crack a little joke. And because I was one of the first grown-ups in the, the crowd there, he kept looking at me, grinning. And I'd give him a little nod back, yeah, a knowing nod, you know, like, yeah, ha, I get it, brother, good joke, you know, good joke, Sam. So he starts his show, right, does a bit of breakdancing and a bit of magic, and he's starting to dress up a bit like a robot as well as he's going along. He does this thing where he's, he's swallowing balloons and that, making out that he's going to shit them out, you know what I mean, nodding at me like that, and I'm there, yeah, 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 mate, good old Sam, you know what I mean? So, anyway, about this point, baby Cassius decides he needs a poo, right, so Charlie takes him off down the street to Costa Coffee or whatever. <laughs> and Sam's in the middle of a robot dance now. He's good at it, too, real good robot dancer. And then he says, right, I need two strong men for the next bit. And I'm thinking, oh, fucking hell, here we go. Here we go. And I'm right at the front, aren't I? He's got his back to me first. He grabs a bloke called Dave or Paul, I can't remember, Dave or Paul out of the crowd on the other side. And then he turns and he looks right at me. And I've got my head down at this point, pretending to look at my phone, and, and but it's too late, you know. He, he catches me eye, I see him, and then my boys, Oscar and Hector, pointing at me like that. Dad, dad'll do it, dad'll do it, pick me dad, pick me dad, he'll do it, my dad here, like that. So sounds like you, sir, would you be so kind like that it gets me over? Well, what could I say? I mean, I couldn't I couldn't make any excuses because I didn't have a clue what he was going to ask me to do. You know, if I knew it was going to be something a bit strenuous, I could have said, Oh, my back's not so good, Sam, or you know what I mean? I'm sorry, mate, I've got a false leg or something. You know what I mean? Anyway, next thing, I'm stood there next to this fucking eight-foot-tall robot, this bloke, Dave, or Paul, whatever he's called. Sam's now pouring petrol all over the place. Charlie, my wife's nowhere to be seen, you know, to bail me out. She's not there. Still not back from taking Cass for his dump. And I'm starting to need one now as well. <laughs> you know, He asked me my name, Sam. And I'm thinking, should I just give a false name in case I get recognised? Anyway, my real name came out. Yeah, I'm called Clint. And he's like, a big round of applause for, for Clint and Dave or Paul, whatever he's called, ladies and gentlemen. And they're all clapping. And then he says, right, Clint, you hold on to these two ropes here. So he's got these two ropes. They're attached to the top of the robot. <laughs> the robot's called Ego. These ropes are about probably nine or ten foot long or whatever. And then he goes around the other side and gives Dave or Paul... Two ropes, same as mine, on the other side. And it becomes apparent then that me and this chap, Dave, let's call him Dave, we're going to stabilise this massive robot with these ropes while Sam climbs up it and fucks about with fire and a couple of skittles and a machete, right, blindfolded. And I'm thinking, he's going to walk away from this with a couple hundred notes. I'm probably going to get blisters and a burning skittle on my head or something. So he takes this support away then. He takes away this support like a third leg off the robot. So it's just standing then on these two thin legs. And it's made from scaffolding poles, right? Like big aluminium scaffolding poles. Really well made bit of kit. Loads of electronic bits on it, lights and shit and loads of wires and that. 
And right away, when he takes his third leg away, I can feel it. I can feel it wobbling. It's wobbling like fuck. This robot. First, Dave's pulling too hard, then I'm pulling too hard. And we're stood there like fucking chuckle brothers. To you, to me. To you, to me, Dave. Dave, over. And I'm thinking, oh, Sam knows what he's doing here. Because this is all a bit, I, I'm not happy with this. Then suddenly Sam jumps on the robot, starts climbing up it, and it's all, all over the place, wobbling. So he jumps off again, makes some adjustments to Ego's nether regions, this robot, he's tightening screws up or something. I, don't, I couldn't see what he's doing, but he's panicking and sorting something out. He climbs back on it and then climbs up to the top of it like a monkey, like an Australian monkey. Me and Dave are struggling, you know, like it, it felt a bit like, it felt like a really shit tug of war. None of us wanting to pull too hard in case we brought Sam crashing back down to earth, you know what I mean? And then Charlie and Cass come walking down the street. Her face, right? Charlie's face when she saw what was going on, it was a picture. She's looking at me, she's mouthing the words. Like She's going, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like that, happy birthday. She said, what are you doing? I'm like fucking holding this robot up, I for Sam. What do you think I'm doing? Anyway, so I'm stood leaning backwards at 45 degrees trying to hold this robot upright. And I swear at one point near the end of the routine, I nearly lost it. It nearly went over Ego, the robot, with Sam on top, all this equipment. Started going the other way towards Dave. Dave's ass went proper. I could see it in his eyes. He was scared, that chap, I tell you. And a shockwave went through the crowd. They're like, whoa, no, all proper like that, worried. They all thought it was game over. And I managed to pull the robot back upright. Sam looking at me. Unimpressed, like I'm the worst assistant ever. Sorry, Sam, you know what I mean? I didn't ask to get involved. And he gets his balance back, finishes routine, crowd go mad and start coming forward to give him money and all that. And no one died, no, no one got hurt, no one died, so Sam made a shitload of money. I got a blister and my arms were trembling for the next hour. <laughs> and as we walked away, I thought, well, at least no one recognised me, making a knob out of myself, you know what I mean? Anyway, then I looked at my phone, didn't I? Twitter, and it's the tweet... Was that at the real Boone I just saw doing street theatre in Chester or someone who looked exactly like him and had the same first name? I got spotted dinner. Somebody saw me doing it. Luckily, there's no pictures uh, to prove it. I'm sure they'll pop up now after I've done this. But one thing I learned that day was next time I stumble upon any type of street theatre, like magicians or jugglers, fire eaters, Australians who robots, no way am I standing at the front and definitely no way am I going to make eye contact with them. <laughs> And we got to hang out at this amazing Roman amphitheatre in Chester as well. We hung out there for quite some time. It's the partly reconstructed remains of a, I think it was like 7,000 capacity venue back in the Roman days. And the Romans used it for everything from theatrical performances to public executions, right? And these days it seems to be a haven for Pokemon Go enthusiasts. We had a job dragging our boys away. There's people running about trying to catch jigglypuffs and dangler gashes, whatever they call all these people running around with their phones and that, devices. <laughs> and um, we went to this brilliant restaurant as well, it specialises in um, mussels, and it's called Mules Agogo. Put that on your list of things to do in Chester, it's great. And something amazing happened as well, right at the end of our day in Chester, it's brilliant this. So me, I always like to travel prepared for any kind of eventualities, you know, including with the weather. I always like to be prepared for bad weather, so I usually have a, a raincoat with me. 
a hat, <laughs> a couple of umbrellas, spur trainers, plastic bag for wet socks, etc. I just don't like getting wet. I don't like being wet. Anyway, as we're getting ready to leave the house that morning, I'm there with my three bags. And Charlie's like, what are you doing with all those bags? But I'm, I'm shit at travelling light, mate. I'm so bad at travelling light. I said, well, it's probably going to rain, isn't it, later on? And she said, no, the weather forecast says it, it won't rain in Chester until 7 o'clock tonight, 7pm, it'll rain. And I'm like, give over. They never get it right. They don't know. I'm taking all my gear, man. I'm putting my folded, fold away umbrella in my bag, as, as they're saying it. And on the way to Chester, probably about noon it was by now, and it started raining, didn't it? And I said, ah, look at that, 7pm, my, my ass. And Charlie says, we're not in Chester yet, we've only just passed Warrington. And I'm like, same thing, and it'll be raining in Chester. <laughs> you know, So we get to Chester, bone dry, it's not rained in Chester. Bone dry all, all afternoon, occasional sunny spells, sporadic outbreaks of dodgy street theatre, but no rain whatsoever all day. And as we walk back to the car... In the evening, it started to rain gently, spitting as we call it. And I got my phone out to look at the time. It was exactly 7pm to the second. I shit you not. Charlie's face lit up. I've never seen my wife so happy about the onset of rain. <laughs> Okay, time for me to get off. Thanks again for downloading this podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist that I put together for each episode. It's got full versions of the tracks that you've heard on this episode. Hope you've enjoyed listening again. Leave some comments on my iTunes page if you get a moment. And thanks again to my friends at Distorted Productions for working their magic on this thing. Check out my other podcast as well if you get a minute. Set to go. So that's set to go with the number two. Uh, it's also available as a free download on iTunes. Get that if you fancy having a listen to some of my recommendations from the world of brand new music. As you know, I always like to end each episode with a piece of music from an unsigned or upcoming band or artist. This week, something extra, extra special. I had the pleasure of spending uh, a lot of time in Newcastle back in the late 1990s. Newcastle upon Tyne, that is up in the northeast. I had a weekly residency at a club up there, and the night was called Bulletproof, and the venue was called Rock Shots. And I got to make some very good friends up there over the years and uh, I totally fell in love with this city. And I became really close to this bunch of lads in a band called The Custom Built. And when it came to love of music, these were some of the most passionate people that I've ever come across. The band was unique as well in terms of the sound of it. They had um, it was a real sort of hybrid of funk music, northern soul, electronica, samples, and they had two frontmen. And dare I say it, they were like Kasabian but a good five years before Kasabian arrived on the scene, but very similar sort of spirit. And unfortunately for the custom built, and with all respect to the wonderful city of Newcastle, the city back then, it just seemed completely cut off from the rest of the UK. This was before the, the digital age, as we know it now, had kicked in. There's no such thing as social media back then to spread the word about your band or your music. I spent many hours with the band uh, recording the songs and helping them to release a couple of singles. But eventually it became impossible for them to keep the band together and they went their separate ways in 2003. Coincidentally, after a big fight, they were supporting the Inspirals in Gateshead and they had a big fight after their set. 
and split up. Fast forward now 13 years and my favourite best band that never made it are back in action and the world's changed with the advantage of this digital revolution that we're right in the middle of, the custom-built time might finally be here. And uh, they said that they're basically writing a bunch of stuff until they've got enough quality material to start playing out again, doing gigs. So no gigs for a while for the custom built, but hopefully a couple of singles this autumn, that's what they're aiming at. They did the Shine Weekender Festival last year, you might have seen them at that. They said they did that for a bit of a holiday, but they realised that they still love writing, still love playing together, and it's still sounding like the custom built, but better, that's what they said. And I was there, I was at the Shine Weekender, they were amazing. They're on Facebook, SoundCloud and Instagram, if you want to get in touch, you want to follow them. And don't forget, the custom built is custom with a K. The track I'm going to close this episode with is the custom built, and the track's called Push the Pull. Thanks for listening. Lots of love to you. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes.
the pull, the pressure on the 